if you're making delivery app, you don't feel you're putting your own craft and self in it in the same way that you do over the creativity of a game. If Leonardo da Vinci was painting the Mona Lisa, he wouldn't use a researcher and he wouldn't go and understand, hey, what kind of paintings do people like? And because of that conflict, because games are an artistic medium, you get a lot more pushback and fear. Welcome back, everyone, to Building Better Games. We've talked about playtesting before on this podcast and how building your product with playtesting and user research in mind is critical to the success of building a great new game. Today, we're going to go even a layer deeper, though, and talk about user research. Today, we have Steve Romley with us. Steve is a games user research consultant helping studios integrate player insights into their development process. Previously a senior researcher at PlayStation, he's also the author of the book, How to Be a Games User Researcher. We're gonna go deep with him today on what user research means, how to build a great user research team, and what areas you should be focused on as you learn from your players with the intent to build better games. Steve, it's great to have you here. Oh, thank you. I'm very happy to be here today. Do you wanna give us a little intro? So my name is Steve Bromley. I've been a games user researcher in the games industry for a little bit over a decade now. A lot of that time was with PlayStation, based in the European team. And as a publisher, obviously, you get exposed to a huge variety of different team sizes and different production challenges from through the RexDev program, lots of small teams and, and tiny budgets where a single study can have a huge impact all the way to big AAA games, things like Horizon was one of the titles that I worked on. Obviously, player research and understanding users is, is recognised as a really important part of game development. And so I've been very lucky that both through my work with the IGDA, helping mentoring people and helping people become games user researchers, and also working with Studio Synth to help them both run playtests and learn how to integrate it into their production process, that I, I get to do this work and work on some fantastic teams and, and projects. So um, yeah, a lot of that, as, as mentioned, was wrapped up in my book, How to Be a Games User Researcher. And, and I continue to help teams who have issues with working out when and how they should be doing user research throughout development. What is user research? So uh, user researchers work throughout the game development process to find players and get player insight into the production process. What that can look like is testing if players understand the game, if they know where they're meant to go, if they know what they're meant to do, finding if something's fun or, or where there's difficulty spikes. And so throughout production, throughout the balancing and looking at post-launch, there are lots of opportunities for us to see if players are acting and well, behaving and have the emotional response that we intend them to have when designers are making games. You were running a big survey across a whole ton of different studios that you released, I think it was a few weeks ago. I'm curious, what is the survey? What was its intention? So the playtest survey wanted to find out how game developers are currently approaching playtesting. We looked at a whole bunch of topics. We looked at when they were playtesting, the methods that they were using, their objectives, what they were trying to learn, where they were getting players from, what bits were confusing or hard or difficult about running playtests, and people's top frustrations with running playtests. We then 
had to go and find game developers to fill that out. And we used a couple of different approaches. I obviously have a network within the games user research community, and so we took it through the games user research community. But also a lot of playtesting is done by teams who don't have dedicated user researchers. So we also looked for any company that had publicly said, we're running a playtest over the last year, and then contacted them directly and said, we have the survey, gave a couple of incentives to encourage them to take part. And then from that, tried to get a huge breadth of the game development practice to learn actually what does user research and playtesting look like in the studio today. What were the big learnings that you took out of it? I think because games is obviously a very secretive environment, teams are, due to, due to the risk of leaks in particular, around user research practice, we have to be very careful both in how we handle players and what we expose them to, but also in teams just being transparent and open about how often they're playtesting, the methods they're using for playtesting and, and user research and the approaches to how that actually looks in a game development environment. And what I've noticed anecdotally or through interviews with people is maturity around user research differed wildly between studios. Some were leaving it until the end of beta to even start to think about the first time they're going to put players in front of their game. Others were doing it from ideation and right from the beginning, doing the work to work out who are our players, what would be a good product for them, and then from the first prototype, putting that in front of players. I think what I wanted to achieve with the playtest survey was just to start to understand what does the landscape look like? How are teams approaching playtesting? What, does it, what methods are they using? When does it fit into their, their production process? And start to expose what that looks like. You just mentioned this idea of, hey, if you get ahead of this soon enough, it might actually drastically affect how production goes. Now, is that in the kinds of product decisions that you might make or what comes up for you when you think about what kinds of impacts that could have on production? I'm curious. I think one of the earliest ones is it can help a team get aligned and a vision on what they're trying to make. So... How people play games is wildly different and the, the needs from different types of players is wildly different. What you would make for a 40-year-old parent of two would be completely different from what you'd make from a, a gamer who has all day to play games. And you can waste a lot of time by prioritising the wrong element of, of what you're making and what your vision for the game is without understanding actually who are you making and, and, and what are their needs and what is their context to play? When and how are they playing games and how does that fit into, into their life? So I think it can help right from the start about defining that vision for the game. And then as, as you know, throughout prototyping and pre-production, teams are coming up with ideas and working out, is this fun? A typical production process or process at, at this stage would be, well, let's just play it internally and let's see until the, it feels right for us and and it feels like this idea has legs before we yeah. start to look at a vertical slice. But again, you can put that in front of players at that stage and rather than relying on your own biases and your own behavior, see if it is actually resonating with your intended player base. So you do consulting around this. Mm -hmm. When you go into companies, I'm curious what, what's the common pushback you get? You know, as, as you've been brought in by somebody who thinks playtesting is important, presumably, 
maybe they've read your book or whatever. They've been like, oh, I think this this guy, this Steve guy is worth talking to, right? So let's pull him in. Let's let's get him talking to some of our, I don't know, our product people or designers, figure out what's going on. And I guarantee there's people who are like, this is a waste of time. Definitely. I think there's a strong resistance to getting player data or player insight. And I can see where that comes from. So there's, again, as I'm sure you know, there's a difference between market research, what sort of game should we be making and what should the themes of the game be, things that will constrain your artistic vision and this process of user research or, or design research, which is, hey, we're not going to, we're not intending to change your vision. We're helping to, or, or give you a conflicting vision. We're intending to help see, does your vision land with players? Is the experience you think you're making the one you're actually putting into the world? And so I think there's that fear that someone's going to come in and say, no, actually, the, you should make a different type of game and your ideas are bad. Whereas what we're hoping to position user researchers uh, is we also want you to execute the best possible version of what you want to execute. I think part of it is because games are an artistic medium and, and inherently linked with creativity. And so people feel a sense of ownership and ego over what they're making. Feels personal. Yes. Yeah. If you're making, I don't know, Uber or like a delivery app, you're not, you don't feel you're putting your own craft and self in it in the same way that you do over the creativity of a game. And because of that conflict, because games are an artistic medium, you get a lot more pushback and fear. A model I used to describe it is, hey, if Leonardo da Vinci was painting the Mona Lisa, he's a researcher and he wouldn't go and understand, hey, what kind of paintings do people like? And I think there is that game to an interesting space of being both creative, but also business that you need to balance both of these. You need to make sure, yes, there's a space for ideation and creativity and, and putting yourself into the world. But also at the end of the day, you want to sell this to someone, presumably so that you can make another game and do it again. And I love your vision. I, I want to hear your vision. I want your vision to get into the world. But we also need to make sure that players are, are recognising your vision and it's landing with them and, and you're creating that emotional response that you you want to be. Even at Riot, we still like had a lot of tension internal to the organization, especially after League became so successful. I think that there was a lot of fear that we didn't want to show the new products. There was a fear that like, feedback would actually cause damage early on. And that tension exists probably all over the industry. There's a rationale behind the perspective that, well, if we just get a bunch of feedback, it'll spin us out. If you go from a place where you had no feedback to suddenly a Niagara Falls of feedback, just pouring in everywhere, you're not going to know how to deal with it. And I think one of the easiest ways to make that shift is to early on bring that feedback in from safe sources if you want, right? Friends and family or other people in the studio, if it's a large enough studio, and then get used to dealing with it. And I think this is something that for you, you go even further and say, even that early, don't just go to the friends and family and the internal, but actually like go to the real audience, go to the real players, get used to dealing with that feedback. Because if you never learn how to deal with it, it's going to be a really bad time when it starts pouring in. Another way to manage this or an approach that I, I work through with teams is, yes, it, it's fair that there's a fear of, hey, I'm getting a whole bunch of feedback. 
And to be honest, a whole bunch of feedback isn't that helpful. Like opinions from everyone, it'll just mm-hmm. quickly become noise and, and provide very little value. And, and if there is any consensus, I think it's going to be unlikely. The approach instead that I try and encourage teams to take is thinking about what decisions are you making currently? Which of those decisions are the most risky or are you least confident in, either based on the lack of experience or based on how pivotal that is to the experience? And then what data do you need to give you confidence that you're making the right decision or at least to inspire a different direction for it? And so we'll go through a process of getting those decisions, turn them into hypotheses and and what you'd expect to see from players or hear from players if this was resonating or landing, and then design a very targeted study to help answer that. Often, again, as you both know from working in games, opinions can not be that constructive or not that helpful. And so also pushing teams towards what are the behaviours that you'd expect to see and, and what are you hoping that players will be able to do or be able to understand and, and push it into objective measures based around small, tightly focused studies? And I think that that approach can help unlock it for, for teams who are worried because they're only testing on things that seem very relevant to them and, and currently pivotal to them. The findings are going to be hugely relevant to the things they want to know today. And that will start them on that process of recognising, oh, we could be doing this for all of our decisions and we could be doing this throughout development. Because I think back to the the point Ben made about the friends and family idea, I think that that's generally widely accepted as like the most people understand what it looks like to start your user research journey around that period of time. But like when I'm thinking about a bunch of developers maybe essentially making an internal mod or an internal prototype or doing pen and paper stuff, I'm like, what would it look like? Like practically, Mm -hmm. what would user research look like at that stage? And what what does it look like at that stage to effectively engage players at that point? Yeah, I'll I'll dive in with some thoughts. So I think early on in that ideation where you're doing prototyping or you've made something that is gray box mechanics to explore it, it is very common, as as you described, to just put that in front of your fellow devs or, or friends and family. I would look at why why you're putting it in front of your friends and family. Um, some teams, that's budget constraints and time constraints. That's just easier. Some, that is that secrecy and the fear of, well, if people know what we're working on, that, that's going to, that's a leak and will have an impact on our marketing plans. And from those, I, I think you can propose a, a couple of different actions. The issue that I see as, as a user researcher with over-relying on friends and family feedback at all your own feel with the game or other game developers is your behavior and your opinions are going to be significantly different from from your real player base you have different prior knowledge your friends and family might not be from the right target audience and also they have a personal relationship with you so they might find it difficult to say that was terrible i hated it so instead i do encourage teams to find ways to put it in front of players at at those points now that doesn't have to be a big deal in a big study you can bring some people into the office who have been likely screened to meet your your player base or jump on a screen share with someone remotely again checking that they are matching your understanding of who your players are and then just put them in front of something and i think by seeing real people who represent your real target players interact with your 
your prototype or your game, it will not just help you test any hypotheses you have about did players understand that? Did that feel fun? Would they play it again? But also just can, at that point, inspire new ideas. You might see emergent behaviour and things that you weren't expecting. And often that can be a, a valuable direction of insight early on in development. Let's say you are a smaller studio with those sorts of budget constraints, but mm-hmm. hearing this and going, you know what, I bet we could hit our Discord community, right? Mm-hmm. We've, got, we've got 50 people in our Discord community. Let's grab some of them. How many would you want them to reach out to or try to reach out to to go like, okay, that's actually, we got to see X number of people going through this. We didn't break our budget because we just screen shared or whatever, right? Like, and this was pretty straightforward, pretty simple, pretty lightweight. So the, the scientific answer is it depends on what you want to learn. And obviously some things are quant questions where you do need a lot of people and to measure. Mm-hmm. But for these smaller teams and for this di- stage of development and just seeing people interact with it, I think you hit saturation. You start to hit the same themes coming up time and time again, somewhere between five and ten players. So mm. if you you can fit that into a day, if, if you dedicate a day to it of, well... This day, I'm going to do five half-an-hour screen shares where I'll jump on a call with a player. I'll ask them a couple of questions about what they're playing and hear about a little bit about their motivations for games to build up my background knowledge of, of that. We'll put them in front of the game. I'll sit quietly and just watch them play. I'll ask them a couple of wrapping-up questions. And I think by the end of a day of doing that, and when you've seen your five to ten players you end up with a much stronger understanding about actually how a player's feeling and interacting with this. You've seen the same themes come up time and time again. Mm-hmm. And I think that's hugely valuable. Some teams, when they imagine playtesting, they imagine, well, it's going to have to be a survey. I'm gonna have to, if it's a survey, I have to send it out to hundreds of people and I have to do statistical checks to see if their ratings are statistically different. And I think, yes, for some questions, for balance questions and retention and big quant questions, yes, it does need to be a big survey. But for a lot of the early development process, you don't need to see that at all. It just needs to be a few players watching them play. And if you can make a regular cadence of that as well, even better. I want to take a quick break from the podcast. Over the last few years, producers have been asking Aaron and I, what's my role? What are the skills I should develop? How do I advance in my career? Game production is in a rough state. We're launching a course to help. It's called Succeeding in Game Production, What You Weren't Taught. Early feedback from our beta testers has been overwhelmingly positive, so we're moving into early access. If that's of interest, check it out in the show notes or head to buildingbettergames.gg and click course. Thanks. Let's get back to the podcast. Early on in the development of League of Legends, we as rioters would play the game every chance we got every day. But if we couldn't play the game for whatever reason, we would play another game. And so there was a culture of playing games and sort of enriching ourselves as players. And it's interesting how few studios I see do that. So Mm. like even amongst the studios that are more user research oriented, I don't see a lot of like, hey, let's play games all the time together as part of our job in deepening our understanding of the ecosystem and what players are doing and how players are developing. So there's this, there's the user research component from a scientific perspective, but there's also like, how are you engaging in real time 
with the audience. So I'm curious, like, I feel like that's missing at a lot of studios. It's like, do you actually play games together? I'm shocked at how many studios are developing big products and like nobody plays games on the team at all. I think I definitely recognize the, the point you're describing. And I guess part of the issue is if you're looking at a textbook definition of a user research role, it would be, we'll go and run a study and we'll tell you an answer. But when it comes to making decisions about what to do about it and thinking about how do we react to that with design, we're entirely hands off. We're not the specialists. And so you should be the one to actually do it. We'll just give you a nice report and, and then move on with our day. Mm-hmm. I think that's, it's not really taking responsibility as a, as a user researcher if you're acting that way and your team is acting in that way. Because our role isn't shouldn't just be we make lovely reports and we throw them over and someone else has has to deal with it. Instead, a user researcher, like every role on, on the game team, should be taking responsibility for the decision-making as a result of it. Mm. If teams need more inspiration, then encouraging teams to, to play a broader set of games, giving them inspiration for their design and, and decision-making is really important. If they need a, a forum to discuss it, being the one who runs the workshop where they think about here's five different ways we could solve this problem, let's evaluate one and, and pick which one to go to, should also be part of being a multidisciplinary team member. And so, yes, I, I definitely recognise the the, the behaviour and, and the point you've described. I think in some ways it's missing the point of doing user research and thinking our job is just to make reports or just to come up with answers. Yeah, there's something in here It reminded me of when we talk about the QA role. And so many people look at the QA role and they go, well, this job is about finding bugs, right? That's the classic view, sort of the traditional view is like the QA role finds bugs. That's what we do. And when I think of QA, when I think of the most effective QA I worked with, I almost viewed them as a guardian of the player experience when it was coming at to the final, you know, hey, this thing is done. Let's put it in the game. QA, a QA analyst doesn't just go and look at it and say, yep, I don't find any bugs and the feature does what you said it was supposed to do. They go in and they say, this feature isn't actually a good feature. So I tested it. It's bug free, quality, top to bottom when it comes to craft stuff, not doing what you intended it to do. I wouldn't like this feature if I was a player. And I know a lot of game studios don't have that view on QA. In a similar way, I think you're talking about the user research side on the front end of that, basically. I think that's entirely correct. Like having a team with a shared agreement and alignment on what are we trying to make and how would players react to that? What what emotional experiences are we trying to create? It's really important. And, And data from players through user research, among other sources, is a pivotal part of that. I think user researchers alongside every discipline needs to recognize, hey, we have shared ownership over the outcome here. Let's make sure we're all on the same path and, and we're doing the same task in the same direction. You know, it's there's something else coming up for me too that dovetails off of this subject because what you're causing me to reflect on, Steve, is my experience working directly with user researchers in my career and the kind of moments, the special moments where I'm like, that was pivotal or that created a ton of value. And one of the things that came up for me is really interesting. It's the studies and the data is really cool. 
Like it's, and it's almost easy to get distracted by it. I remember looking at some of those reports and I did that thing that humans do, which is, oh, look at all of this data reinforces all the decisions I've made. And clearly this data all shows that I'm correct and I know what I'm doing. And then the user researcher would be like, well, hang on a second. Um, <laughs> and so there was this like ability that they had to help not just provide the data, but interpret the data and challenge the psychology and clarify the nuance of what players were saying, or, hey, we saw these behaviors and here's what we think that means. Or I think that we might be thinking about this problem the wrong way. People seem to be more focused on this than, than this important thing you keep mentioning. Like so, those sorts of things were so helpful for me as a leader because I felt like the translation was actually 80% of the battle of the data, even more than just collecting the data, you know? I think there's two things that come to mind as, as user researchers or people doing user research, because often this is a role done by a designer or a producer or someone just a part of their role that we can do to help that. I guess the first is making sure you understand the team's mindset and the challenges and what they're thinking before you go and run a study or gather some data or do a play test. And that's time encouraging teams to think about their decisions that they're making, articulate what they think success looks like versus failing looks like, articulate what emotional and, and behavioural reactions they're looking for, and then making sure you've got that in your mind and, and captured before you go and capture some data. Then you can have a lot more of an objective discussion around, you thought this was important, but actually this was important, rather than falling into that trap of, post hoc deciding what you learned based on, on what you wanted to learn. <laughs> the other thing that I think is important is making sure we're taking every opportunity to make this a collaborative process with the whole team, exposing people firsthand to players' behaviour and what players are doing, uh, such as streaming sessions, creating viewing rooms where people can come and watch, encouraging teams to watch videos and make their own notes and make their notes part of, of what we're learning and how we interpret the data. And in that way, you can also help you overcome your own bias as the person watching the session and analysing it and, and taking away some conclusions to make sure that you are aware of all these viewpoints on the team and you're aware of what everyone else saw and also how best to communicate what your conclusions are and how you think they should land. And so I think opening up the research process can help with that a lot. Have you ever run into a situation, a team of any size, where, you're, where you've gone and said, you know, looking at where you're at and what you're trying to do, you don't really need to do player research. Like that sort of thing's not important here. So sometimes the problems are obvious and you, by someone playing the game, just as I'm, a, I'm someone outside the team, and I'll play the game and there are obvious usability issues, things that are obviously not conveyed, tutorials that obviously aren't not going to land. And I think with at least a little bit of background knowledge, you can ant often anticipate what the issues might be. Now you could go ahead and test that and say, and find those problems. But at that point, you're wasting a bunch of, of time and money for the team where instead you could just react immediately to, I think these will be the issues that, that will occur. Please resolve these issues the best you can. And when this represents what you think will fix the issues, then we'll take it into test. That particularly comes up in when we're doing iterative testing, when we've done, done one round, found some problems, and then we're, gonna, we're talking about doing a second round. 
And if the teams haven't reacted to what they learned the first time and the objectives are the same, yet you still want to learn the same things, we know at that point what the findings would be. So we can encourage teams not to test in those cases. Otherwise, I think there's always something that you can learn. The start for a study shouldn't be, oh, I think we need to play test. We should always start the study by thinking about what decisions are you trying to make and what risks are you currently worried about? If you are starting your your test by talking about decisions and risks and what we need to learn today, I think you can always create an appropriately scoped study to answer that. Where you get into trouble is if you think, oh, we're hitting a milestone and so we should probably play test, where you, you don't really know what you want to learn. You're just doing it because you feel that you should be play testing. When have you been surprised mm. in your career and what are the kinds of ways that you've been surprised and what are your takeaways from those surprises? I'll talk about a couple of stories, I, I think. So one is what ends up being a very famous game that was very secretive and no one has seen it at any point through development. Because it was coming up to launch, they wanted to to see, OK, we, we probably should do a playtest. We haven't done a playtest before and wanted to put it in front of people. And immediately, like from the first five seconds, there were such significant usability issues. People couldn't start the game. People couldn't work out how to move in the game. People died and loop in the, in the game. That I think it was one of the things that drove home the impact of, oh, actually, we should have caught this well before. You might think that because you've all been playing it every day and, and because you've worked on this a lot, you would have found these issues. But those critical issues can sneak through, even with very experienced developers working on very, like, on games for many years. My own personal memories of playtesting is often about the participants and the time we spend with players rather than the the game itself. I was lucky enough to work on a lot of party games and that's just a really fun environment for playtesting because you, you're getting groups of four friends coming to do some semi-competitive games together and you could put anything in front of those people and it would be fun. So I... I think you take away from that a lot of recognition of if you're trying to do things such as measuring fun or measuring is this an enjoyable experience, in many ways multiplayer games are cheating because you have fun with your friends regardless of what you're doing as opposed to the actual content of the game. And, and that type of measure might not lead to commercial success for the game because you're, you're conflating are they having fun when they're playing with four friends with will anyone buy this game and that can be an issue. I think with those type of things, especially with fun in general, that's often a, a thing a team want to learn and is counterintuitively one of the hardest things for us to reliably measure, or reliably define, just because the definition of fun is so broad. Yeah, There's something you can do about benchmarking. You could look at, okay, how does this experience compare with an equivalent experience? But in general, you have to be very careful with how you're interpreting fun with things like co-op or, or other experiences. If I was founding a game startup, I would not think about hiring a games user researcher as a full-time staff member when I'm like four or five people, right? Mm -hmm. What's your recommendation for when do I actually want to have an in-house person that's holding this value of player research for my organization? I think that's a great question um, and entirely true that because it is a supporting role, not one of the recognised as a core role, 
it's not going to be part of a small team. And, and because of that, you often see that acting most full-time user research roles end up at publishers because they can support multiple games and yep. even though they still develop relationships with the teams and can try and avoid that just sending reports thing that you get from entirely outsourcing, that's still where you hit the scale that user research is needed or as a primary role. I guess my recommendation for the for teams and for growing teams is well, let's encourage teams to think about what they're doing currently. Let's expose, work out what an experiment would be to test if this is working. Let's create the opportunity to put that in front of players and then see the results. It's a thing that you don't need a huge amount of academic experience to do. And so can become part of someone's role. Often I see producers or designers or people who have adjacent roles start to take on that responsibility of, well, I'm going to be the one who makes user research happen and I'm going to be the one who, who looks at, at the data and draws conclusions very early on. You can have, well, even solo devs can make this a part of what they do, but when you start to have producers or designers who have capacity when your, your team is slightly larger, that can be part of their role. And I think it can only only becomes a dedicated role quite late in scaling when you've you've done that enough and built that culture and habit of, of user research that it just takes too much time for someone to do a side, a side of their job and then can become a full-time role for someone. Is that something you consider, because I hear you speaking to the maybe the pragmatic nature yeah. and versus an ideal state and dropping the practical for a moment, yeah. and I apologize, Aaron, what would your ideal answer be for like phase of development where I actually want someone who is, again, carrying the torch for player mm -hmm. research, um, whether that's a fully trained user research some, or somebody we just gave your book and a bunch of other resources to and got them a mentor from outside the company or whatever. We were just like, hey, you're, you know, you producer, you're now going to make sure this is something that happens for the rest of development. Nice. So I think at the end of pre-production, often you end with a vertical slice, and that's a really nice way that you can have a huge amount of impact to... You have the complete experience. It's a huge amount of value in validating that. So starting that at the end of pre-production is before you then turn on the fire hose of production, and now you're just making content and just shipping it as fast as you can, is very important to give it some dedicated focus then. Throughout production, there's a huge amount of opportunities for user research. Different content is being made. That you can evaluate each of these things in isolation. You can look at them in, as a case of whole and see if players are understanding. And, and if you're, the whole thing is making the experience you want. But yeah, I think your answer to the answer to when when should you definitely be doing it? And it's too late if you're not doing it. Would be at the end of pre-production. You definitely need to have started putting things in front of players. And if you started a game studio, you were like the CEO, yeah. when would you want somebody else carrying the torch? I, if I started a studio, I would want some studies to be happening before we've committed to anything. I would want to do a whole bunch of work looking at, presumably have some competitor games, understanding how and why people are playing these competitor games, their context of play, like where they're playing it, what led them to buy that game over a competitor game, and then make sure that the whole team has that shared understanding and definition of this is who our player is, this is what they're trying to achieve by playing games, this is what success looks like for them, and then using that to inspire, oh, what 
what type of game should we make? What features should it have? What theme should it be? Even going back to market research, I think I'd want at least studies to be happening in that shape right from the start. I'm curious if you've experienced that sometimes user research or player research is something people don't want to do because they know if they learn a bunch of things, it's going to mess up their plan, right? I have this plan. I've laid out the features and the content and all these things. And I kind of just want to heads down and get through it. And so viewing player research, because the focus is so much on the the thinking of the game as a project or the operationalization of everything, it's like player research is a disruption. Do you ever encounter that? I think I definitely see that. I don't know if you use the same framing, but that difference between project thinking of, yes, what we're trying to do here is get through our backlog and, and get through some tickets and then at the end ship, a pro- uh, ship our project. Yep. And product thinking where we're looking at what's the outcome we're trying to create how can we define that outcome? And then how, with lots of pivots on the way, what actions can we do that get us closer to that outcome each day? I see many studios treat user research as a box ticking exercise. It's, oh, we need to do user research. We need to do a play test or a user research study because that's what we do when we hit a milestone. Let's do it and outsource it perhaps get our nice report and move on with our lives yeah whereas the real value is it creates opportunities for reprioritization it creates opportunities for teams to reflect on what they think is important currently and is that genuinely important or should we be doing something different with our uh, to make sure we're we're creating a good experience for players and so again encouraging teams to both be exposed to studies by either running it themselves or, or watching things themselves, coming on to see them, and also encouraging a regular cadence of these, even if they have to be pragmatic and scrappy, but just to, to keep exposing the player sentiment and player behaviour so that y- you can pivot as early as possible if your culture is one that encourages pivoting and change. So, you know, maybe as we uh, close up, I can ask you, what would be like your top two or three pieces of advice for game developers or leaders in games to really get the most value out of these tools and out of this skill set? I think three things come to mind based on, again, things like the playtest survey where we looked at playtest behavior currently. The first is poor scoping of the studies happens and people don't know what they want to learn from playtests and often just go in it with a mindset of we want to run a playtest rather than we want to test something specific. So making sure that you're having those conversations internally about what decisions are coming up, what's the riskiest one of those decisions and how can player data and a tightly scoped study help us build confidence that we're going in the right direction, I think is super important. A second problem I I see time and time again is leaving it too late that belief that you can you're going to run a big open beta later on in development you're going to run a big survey and that's when you're going to find the problems yes you will find the problems but many of them will be baked in at that point and by using qualitative methods by doing smaller studies by just bringing some players into the office a one week a month and watching them play you can create many more pivot points early in development and from that 
uh, improve the quality of your game immensely and not get boxed in. I guess the last thing to watch out for as well is also thinking about who is taking part in your playtests. Teams often over-rely on feedback from friends and family or from other game developers. And these people's background knowledge, their context, their relationship with you makes them completely different from your target player. But with a little bit of effort into making sure you've, you've defined your target player and you're looking for them and making sure they're taking part of it, you can trust the data you're getting back from your playtests a, a lot more. And again, it just helps make more confident decisions as you go through. Oh my gosh, that's beautiful. What a segue. And I'm going to add a couple in there that came up that really struck me too. But you, those are the three perfect points. Another one you mentioned is that user research is not just about making reports and doing studies. You should engage with the team and the product decisions. And we talked about this idea that really having an, the idea of having an embedded person who's taken on the role of user researcher is a really powerful way to frame things properly so that decisions can be made more effectively. Another one is you can save a ton of time during production as well because it's that agile principle of maximizing the work not done. And that's something worth remembering. This isn't just necessarily about making the best decision. It's also about probably making decisions around what you don't need to do or what isn't important. If you treat player research as a box checking exercise, mm -hmm. you know, like, oh, I listened to the Steve Bromley podcast with Building Better Games. And he said at the end of pre-production, we should start doing player research. So let's make sure that hey, there's a gate with a checkbox that says player research, you know, and whatever, that broad approach to just let's check the box here, let's make sure we get the survey out, let's make sure, yes, don't worry, as part of our game production product plan, we have player research at point X, Y, and Z throughout it, excellent, we will be successful because, you know, they're treating it as a box checking exercise is actually one of the ways to get very little value out of it. That goes back to Steve's point about like the value is information that helps you make material decisions that affect the game. So if it is just a box checking exercise, you're prioritizing something different. You're not getting that value out of it. The reasons why we don't do things, we talked about this early on, this idea that like, it's a game, it's art. It can feel very personal. Talking to users does not mean your ideas are bad and you have to manage your fear. I think that that's really, really important to manage that fear as well and be brave, be courageous and, and use it as an excuse to make a meaningful connection with the people who will eventually play your game too. Player research isn't about just like handing design control of the game over to your players and letting them determine everything that's going to happen. There's a thing we were trying to do is it successful? And if it's if it is great, and if it's not, what do we want to do about that? Again, there's a there's this idea of almost empowering the team, giving agency to the developers to be like, okay, now we know how do we want to respond. Doing something very simple around screen share or whatever, and just like seeing what happens with five or 10 people, this doesn't have to be an incredibly expensive thing. And it doesn't even need to be a trained games user researcher, it could be somebody else who's taking ownership of this and deciding that like, I'm going to carry this torch because we know this is an important torch to carry. And so every few months or whatever, or at the right moments when we feel like we need to make good decisions, I'm going to talk to less than a dozen people. And it's going to really impact our ability to make a better game and a better experience for those players.
So I think that was the other one that came up for me. Nice. Steve, anything you want to point people to, to learn more about this stuff? Uh, yes. So if you're interested in learning more either about a career in game user research, or if you're a game developer who just wants to know how to integrate user research and playtesting into a production process, my website, gamesuserresearch.com, has a whole bunch of guides, there's a newsletter, and there's some, uh, some mini free books to help you get started with doing this. Did you enjoy this content? Every two weeks, we will deliver one actionable step that will increase your chances of delivering a successful game straight to your inbox. Join game developers across the world and sign up for the Building Better Games newsletter at www.buildingbettergames.gg newsletter. Again, that's www.buildingbettergames.gg newsletter. Thanks for listening.